Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, So we have a lot to talk about. It's been a long summer, so we're going to hopefully get this podcast out soon because we're running a little late. Uh, so, uh, but, but we've had a chance to gather a whole bunch of interesting articles. So I'm going to start with an article on breastfeeding duration and high blood pressure in children and adolescents. And this one's done in China. So, uh, the first author was Lu L-I-U, uh, and this was published in the open access journal called Nutrients in 2022, issue 14, item 3152. And according to the authors, the latest figures show that actually 22% of children in China from the ages of 13 to 17 have high blood pressure, which we know, which is amazing, really, uh, but that may reflect, you know, changes in diet and, of course, obesity rates, higher BMI. And you and I and most people listening probably know that high blood pressure is a major risk factor for vascular disease and underlying illnesses such as kidney failure, strokes, and heart attacks. So, you know, starting high blood pressure early is a very serious issue because it just um, leads to that gradual damage of the vascular lining over time, just setting up, you know, just the aging of these arteries is, you know, uh, a very bad thing, you know, for the reasons that I just mentioned. So uh, there's also plenty of evidence that breastfeeding has a protective effect against high blood pressure in children in Japan, Canada, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and Brazil, Um, which I think, you know, we never talked about this, but when we find similar pathology in other countries, you know, in a number of other countries, it seems like that's validating in terms of the association of the disease and the process, right? Because if you only find something in one country, then you think, okay, there may be predominantly a cultural or a diet, you know, some sort of dietary issue that may be associated. Um, so uh, I just think this is that's very validating that there has been that this association is probably real. So the goal of this study was to demonstrate if breastfeeding did protect from high blood pressure, like it does in other countries, uh, whether it does this in China, and whether the protection is associated with the duration of breastfeeding. Uh, the authors, uh, it's interesting how they did the study. They randomly chose schools that are in seven provinces or uh, cities in China. And they looked at the odds of high blood pressure based on the breastfeeding duration. So in every school that they chose, they invited students and parents from two classes in each grade to participate in the study. And they didn't include any children for whom excuse me, they didn't have height, weight, blood pressure measurements, or breastfeeding information. So they ended up with a lot of children. They ended up with 57,201 children and adolescents in the study. I know one thing about these Chinese studies, they tend to be really large. 
which is really interesting. Uh, they measured the height, weight, blood pressure, and gathered a really extensive amount of demographic information, including breastfeeding information, family history of vascular disease, which I think was very important to control for, maternal age at delivery, where they lived, parental education, family income. And then they also asked about lifestyle data, such as how much uh, produce they consumed and their degree of physical activity. What I found interesting is that more than half of these parents refused to report their income and uh, fewer than 30% had any education beyond high school. When they controlled for the, this whole host of demographic, demographic factors, they found that the duration of breastfeeding was protective from high blood pressure. Uh, they found that breastfeeding for six to 12 months was associated with a 0.43 millimeter mercury lower uh, systolic blood pressure and 0.36 millimeters of mercury lower diastolic blood pressure. Uh, they didn't find really any protection for breastfeeding under six months, which I thought was interesting. And, and weirdly, they found that the blood pressure was higher among the boys if the boys breastfed for more than 12 months, but they didn't find that among the girls. And it's, you know, and it seems like, you know, 0.43 millimeters of mercury for systolic blood pressure seems like, ah, you know, who cares? But, you know, when you're dealing, when, you know, whenever we're talking about like really large scale studies like this, moving the needle just a little bit in one direction is very significant, just like one degree you know, when we talk about climate change, we see these devastating effects, but we're talking about like one degree of temperature, you know, around the world. So, and also I think, you know, when we're talking about high blood pressure in children in particular, it's over so, so many years that it's impactful that tiny changes do build up on the, the stress on the vascular system. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk about, um, uh, high blood pressure, like when I try to convince my patients to, uh, you know, do something about their blood pressure, whether it's lifestyle change or medication, I, the way I explain it is that high blood pressure is like a stormy sea. And if you think about like the, the, um, the coastline in the Northern Atlantic, you know, it's rocky, it's jagged, the rocks are sharp. And then you look at the coastline in Fiji where the where it's very smooth and it's like nice sand and it's gentle waves and the coastline looks so soft. That's the difference. Like the northern, the northern Atlantic is very, you know, rocky and the waves are huge and it's just like a much higher pressure than the waves in Fiji. And I just say, now translate that to your blood vessels and think about what they look like. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so we definitely need to be paid. We, so this is one more thing that we should be talking about to our parents, to our families about, um, you know, a benefit for children. That's so interesting. I would say, uh, you know, it, I agree. It's really an important health thing to note, but I, I, I continue to be like the convincing parents and uh, the initiation, I think is not always where it's at anymore. It's all about that training providers that it's important to support breastfeeding because of these health outcomes. Cause families are doing, I mean, for the most part, all they can. And I think that's really interesting in relation to this um, document that I want to talk about, which is the AAP policy statement that just came out on breastfeeding and the use of human milk. It was published in um, the journal of pediatrics in June of 2022. 
And this updated AAP guidance continues to recommend exclusive breastfeeding for six months with complementary foods introduced around that time. The new policy recommendation is consistent with those of the American Academy of Family Physicians, the WHO, and the Canadian Pediatric Society in that it now supports continued breastfeeding until two years or beyond. Updated, um, an updated policy statement and technical report outline the medical and neurodevelopmental advantages of breastfeeding, along with the role pediatricians play as advocates and clinicians. Data reveal that human milk in the second year of life continues to be a significant source of macronutrients and immunologic factors for growing toddlers. And studies and meta-analyses have confirmed the impact of breastfeeding longer than 12 months on maternal health in decreasing um, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, which thus decreases stroke and heart disease, breast cancer, and ovarian cancer rates. Mothers who decide to breastfeed beyond the first year need support. They often report feeling ridiculed um, in their choice, and they sometimes conceal their breastfeeding behavior to minimize um, unsolicited judgment and comments. There's evidence that only one half of mothers who breastfeed past one year discuss their decisions with their pediatric primary care provider. And almost 40% of women who report their provider was unsupportive of breastfeeding elected to change their pediatric primary care provider. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, it's uh, it's really impactful to those people. They highlight also significant sociodemographic and cultural differences in breastfeeding, and really um, in an effort to show how important it is to support all patients. The lowest rates of initiation are among non-Hispanic, Black, or African American populations. And similar disparities exist among young and low-income mothers and those with less education. Implementation of breastfeeding support programs decreases the disparities between Black and white infants. And peer support interventions by WIC, Women, Infants, and Children programs, have improved rates and duration. And for anyone listening outside of the United States, WIC is just in the United States, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, this AAP policy statement, it got a little bit of backlash in the community for some of the things that I've just mentioned. And the authors, I heard them speak about it and they, you know, really are, um, approaching infant feeding from a public health perspective. And, and I would just say that the backlash really came at the time of the formula shortage, right? I mean, that's, I think that's what really hit home to sort of a gut punch for people. Yeah. I think a lot of people were like, oh, you know, women are trying as hard as they can. And now you're saying it has to be two years. And, and I think when I heard the author speak, they were really highlighting the fact that um, the evidence shows us that that is beneficial to families. And by educating physicians to be more supportive, it will allow them to support their patients and advocate for public health systems that can you know, paid time off and all sorts of things that will help people to be more successful to continue because plenty of people who wean before they desire to, that downward slide started at three months when they returned to work. 
Yes, absolutely. And I just have to say too that uh, I've heard so many comments over the years when people say like, is there a benefit of nursing past a year? Your doctor's like, oh, the, that milk probably doesn't matter anymore. It's, it's, there's nothing important in the milk after 12 months. Yeah. I was getting a referral from a breast surgeon last week and she said, this mom is, you know, breastfeeding the baby's 18 months. Don't ask me why. And I really had to bite my lip and be like, I don't have time to explain to her why right now, but later on, I'll go back and do it. Oh yeah. She, um, she needs a response to that. <laughs> um, so it, the authors highlight that. Um, oh, before I go there, I was going to say the other backlash, which is sort of in a way similar. I mean, some people were feeling like they're potentially pressuring folks who are struggling already there was some concern about, you know, the highlighting that the authors were referring to about the disparities. It's not critical of populations that have lower rates. It's highlighting that they're not getting the support that they need. Um, so in uh, the United States now, more than 80% of women initiate breastfeeding, but only 25.8% exclusively breastfeed by six months. And we know around 19% of infants receive formula supplements in the first 48 hours of birth. So pediatricians communication with families about the benefits of breastfeeding can increase initiation, duration, and, and exclusivity. Still, the policy states that exclusive or any breastfeeding is not always possible and mothers and families need support for their decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to say too, maybe you're going to talk about this, but I just feel like, I feel like whenever you need to like two years, you know, right. You're talking about these shorter durations, right. And we're saying, Oh, you should breastfeed for two years that I, I think that these sorts of public policy statements, it's like plain tug of war. Right. So if you really want to win, you lean as far back as you can to pull maybe a, you know, the other team, you know, a little bit more center, right? Yeah, that's a yeah. great analogy. I love that. The other thing that I um, really, I have a lot of uh, feelings about when it comes to this policy is, you know, a lot of the verbiage in here is that, you know, pediatricians should be advocates for breastfeeding. I think that the language could be a lot lot stronger around um, the medical support of breastfeeding. And they really don't highlight the fact that families are hitting obstacles that are preventing them to continue that pediatricians are not knowledgeable enough to help them with. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit further down as we go on. So the report reviews a number of breastfeeding basics that all pediatricians should know, such as contraindications, special considerations like the impact of substance abuse, infectious diseases, medications, talking about sort of do's and don'ts. I think it's a great, um, very basic introduction for residents to see late preterm and early preterm infants. Although they, although they say not to breastfeed with HIV, right? I know I um, didn't specifically call that out. I would say that there is uh, there are a few things in here that are good. I'm going to highlight some stuff on the Billy Rubin, and that one I would say is not progressive. 
Right. Yep. And I think it's not, yeah, it's, it's not respectful for those living with HIV who have undetectable levels with the great information that we have out there now that there's uh, increasing support among infectious disease physicians and other physicians who specialize in HIV medicine. Yes. And I think that a lot of this language, you know, you can talk about shared decision-making and uh, so they highlight the basics of um, breast milk feeding for um, those preemies and very low birth weight infant hospital support. And um, they highlight with radiological procedures that um, mothers receiving gadolinium or iodine contrast do not need to stop breastfeeding or to express or discard their milk, which I think is helpful to have directly in an AAP document. Yes. Um, There's a little paragraph that I want to go through on hyperbilirubinemia. And really the reason that I'm super interested in this particular topic right now is because there's a brand new um, policy statement as well from the AAP right now on um, hyperbilirubinemia, um, jaundice. And I think that that is going to um, have some impacts over the next you know, few months as people start to adopt that. I think fewer babies are gonna need to be treated with phototherapy based on the new guidelines. So some of the things that are in here remind us that infants who are breastfed um, tend to have higher mean concentrations of bilirubin. It's believed to be physiologic and there's some evidence that bilirubin in neonates is beneficial because it is a potent antioxidant. Poor intake by exclusively breastfed infants in the first day of life, however, can be associated with pathologic hyperbilirubinemia. a study documented that decreased frequency of breastfeeding, especially seven or fewer times a day is associated with higher bilirubin concentrations where breastfeeding nine to 10 times a day is associated with lower concentrations. And I think this is you know, really well connected with the new bilirubin statement where they say, please stop calling it um, breastfeeding jaundice because it's really suboptimal intake that is the issue. And in a lot of places, we don't do a good job of really ensuring that babies are getting to the breast that frequently during the first couple of days because of hospital practices. I think Larry Gartner used to call it non, non, non non-feeding, non-feeding jaundice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's essentially what it is. Um, Infant supplementation when necessary should be done with expressed maternal milk. Colostrum feedings increase stooling, which increases bilirubin excretion in the stools. And my favorite part, the need for phototherapy in an otherwise healthy infant without signs of dehydration or insufficient intake is not an indication for supplementation with formula unless bilirubin concentrations are approaching exchange transfusion levels. That's great. Infants requiring phototherapy benefit from remaining in close proximity to the mother to facilitate cue-based feeding and additional breastfeeding support. I always say to the residents, if you're already turning on the lights, that's going to take care of the bilirubin. You don't need to also interfere with breastfeeding. And I find that sometimes people do things which I think are a little crazy of like, keep that baby under the lights 24 seven and feed them a bottle under the lights. And I'm like, okay, let's remember that actual thing we're worried about with bilirubin is 
happening in the high 30s of bilirubin and some of these babies are getting treated at a level of 11 and the you know if you take them out maybe they'll need a couple more hours on the back end but no harm is going to come to them from interrupting the lights intermittently. Well, and there's also, the, I don't know if the new, I haven't read the new policy yet, but there's this new evidence now that um, has been building about um, non-continuous uh, uh, phototherapies because it just, it takes a few minutes to convert the bilirubin into water-soluble form by the lights, but it takes hours to reaccumulate it to the surface of the skin. Um, so uh, you can actually, what you accomplish in just a, and I'll send you that article. What you I had no idea. I can't wait to see yeah. that. Yeah. Non-continuous. Yeah. It actually is pretty impressive that uh, intermittent phototherapy where you just do it like an hour, like every three or four hours, something like that. I have to look at the study again uh, is very effective. And I can, and I'll post that on our, um, I'll, I'll post those articles on our uh, podcast group. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. Because I think, you know, in addition to this issue of like, oh, will they take them out? The other thing that I see, the major reason that I see infants getting supplemented in my setting during phototherapy is actually just to keep the baby calm. So, you know, this is a baby that isn't swaddled, that is lying in an open crib. They want to be held. They want to be, you know, wrapped up or, you know, something to be warm and snuggly. And if they're under the light, they just fuss. And so they feed them a ton and pop a pacifier in their mouth so that they'll snooze all day long. Right. Absolutely. Um, it also just mentions briefly that some breastfed infants experience breast milk jaundice which is a benign condition that may persist for up to three months of age. The bilirubin is unconjugated and occurs in healthy, thriving infants who are gaining weight appropriately and stooling frequently, and no specific treatment is necessary. Yay. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other things they go through are mentioning that breastfeeding can be um, induced for adoption and surrogacy talking about language when we're um, supporting families born to gender diverse, infants born to gender diverse families, um, vitamin and mineral supplements and complementary feedings. And they say complementary solids should be introduced at about six months for most infants. Foods rich in protein, iron, and zinc, such as finely ground meats, chicken, or fish are good choices to complement the infant's diet of breast milk. Um, breast milk remains the major component of the infant's diet as foods from the family's diet are gradually introduced with appropriate modification of texture and avoidance of added sugar and fat. I'm glad they mentioned about, you know, starting with uh, protein foods that are high in zinc and iron, because I think in this country, we're so used to starting like with the vegetable and the fruit and vegetable and the fruit. And then gradually it's not until like nine months that the kids like get something with protein. And uh, those sources are really important for, you know, for iron and zinc. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always talking to families when we're talking first foods about what are good choices nutritionally. Yeah. Um, and then there's, I think the main controversy around when to start solids is really around allergies. And so an expert panel has advised that peanut introduction as early as four to six months of age for infants at high risk of peanut allergy um, because of the presence of severe 
eczema and or egg allergy, but not until six months for infants with moderate or low risk. And so that is very, very few infants. And um, I think it's stronger language around continuing exclusive breastfeeding until six months. Yeah, I still think it's very, very pervasive that doctors say, oh, four months, you can just start solids. And they're not aware of this evidence about increased risk of colds and diarrhea and wheezing among children who mm-hmm. start earlier, even for formula-fed babies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there are sort of 10 key recommendations, the exclusive breastfeeding for about six months and continued until two years or beyond. Um, birth hospitals and centers should implement maternity care practices that improve breastfeeding, initiation, duration, and exclusivity. Pediatricians should provide information to parents so they can make informed feeding decisions. And the parent decision should be fully supported without pressure or guilt by any member of the healthcare team. Parents giving birth should be supported to breastfeed through early initiation of skin to skin and frequent breastfeeding with skilled lactation support readily available in maternity care facilities. Pediatricians are encouraged to um, use current resources such as LactMed to provide guidance and avoid disrupting breastfeeding unnecessarily, even temporarily, because most most maternal conditions, medications, and vaccinations are compatible with breastfeeding. Pediatricians need to be knowledgeable about the health benefits of breastfeeding and breastfeeding management and skillful in providing culturally congruent care. They should implement breastfeeding supportive policies and practices in their office and may consider partnering with lactation specialists to support breastfeeding parents and children. Pediatricians play a role in advocating for socially and culturally sensitive policies that support breastfeeding families and can work to address inequalities in the delivery of care in the office, the hospital, and the community to eliminate disparities in breastfeeding. Pediatricians can assist parents who have given birth to preterm or other vulnerable infants to establish a full supply of milk by working with hospital staff to facilitate early frequent expression. Pasteurized donor human milk is recommended for very low birth weight infants when their mother's milk is not available or as a supplement to the mother's milk. Policies that protect breastfeeding are essential to support families in sustaining breastfeeding. And finally, national breastfeeding rates through the age of two years should be tracked and data should be stratified by known breastfeeding disparities by national public health infrastructure. Yay, that's really great. Yeah, I liked that last one a lot. I like that one too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, well, thanks for sharing that. I think there's, there's a lot of information there. And I, uh, I think, you know, having a, a more powerful statement is just so important, especially for, I feel like it's important for lactation consultants to be able to share with the pediatricians in their community when they feel that their physicians are not being supportive. Um, I don't know. I wonder how many physicians like are not really excited about following their own uh, Academy's guidelines, you know, I, you know, it's interesting. What I always say is it's easy to follow the guideline for recommending a car seat, recommending a booster seat, because you don't have any difficulty in doing that work. But the place where pediatricians struggle with these recommendations, 
associations is that they don't have the knowledge to support families that are not able to meet their own goals. And because we know that two thirds of parents in this country are not meeting their breastfeeding goals, that's a lot of people. And if your patient is saying to you, oh, I want to have a full milk supply for this preterm baby. I mean, it's a lot. I really think that this should be a joint statement between AAP and ACOG because where it says pediatricians should support, you know, the parents who had preterm babies to create a full milk supply and pediatricians don't all have the knowledge to evaluate that mother to see what is going on that she isn't making it to a full milk supply. It is not always, oh, you need to pump more often. You need to pump longer. And that sort of support really is exhausting for families. And so having people be able to dig in and do that differential diagnosis of, oh, that pump isn't fitting you right. Like it doesn't matter how many hours you use it. You're not going to get there. You need to add hand expression. You need you know, some other things that really causes, I think the the conflict here. And so supporting pediatricians to have more knowledge because many pediatricians think that they're supportive of breastfeeding. It's not like a lot of people are going around being like, oh, breastfeeding, breastfeeding. I think it's more that they're saying, yeah, you should do it. And when the families come in at two weeks still giving formula, even though their intention is to exclusively breastfeed, the pediatricians go, okay, see you in two months. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, uh, I think there's a number of issues. Number one, I hate the term physician friendly, like a a breastfeeding friendly doctor's office. Cause you know, it's, it, to me, it's almost dangerous to say you rah, rah, go breastfeeding. I really support you. And then watch a baby who's like faltering at the breast, like, but you're breastfeeding and we're just going to keep watching this weight. And then they haven't, you know, not back to birth weight until six weeks, which unfortunately I see because they want to be supportive. Right. So they're, they're supportive, but not knowledgeable, as you said. Um, and then, uh, oh, I can't remember what the other thing is. <laughs> It'll come back to you. I mean, on that front, like, I would love to see, because pediatricians in particular live and die by the Bright Futures guidelines that were used to create in this country the um, policies around what the Affordable Care Act requires insurance companies to pay for in terms of well visits that then don't have any cost sharing. And so sometimes pediatricians are hesitant to bring people back for an additional visit because it's going to cost the family in a, you know, copay or cost share or whatever. But I would really have liked to see a recommendation that says infants who are supplemented after they leave the hospital need close follow-up or people who are struggling need um, additional monitoring beyond routine well checks. But I think we need data that shows that those practices are impactful for improving breastfeeding rates before it's going to make it into this sort of a statement, even though I know from doing general peds that if you say, it's okay, you don't need to give that extra bottle at bedtime, come back in two or three days, I'm going to show you, you're doing great. Your weight, baby's weight's going to keep going up. It makes a huge impact. People don't routinely do that because it's not the way our visits are structured and it's not the way we're trained. Yeah. And I also think that they're, they're too busy to bring them back. They just don't have room in their schedules. Um, I mean, at least that's they what I think, think they think that, but yeah. when they do it, they have less 
visits for ear infections. They have right. less visits for, I mean, truly that was what I saw in my patients and it's, it's been borne out by the evidence. So yeah. And putting all of that, actually you're right, because putting all that effort, like huge amounts of investment and time early for families really lessens the visits later. You know, they're not, there's, you know, there's a lot less anxiety about feeding. You just get getting them off on that great start is important. I know what I was going to add, which was that I think um, there's also a huge sentiment um, among family physicians and pediatricians to really uh, to really understand where the parents are not. And so when parents decide that they're going to supplement with formula, they're not going to wake up at night because if they wake up at night, they're not going to get back to sleep. Their production is going to go down, but this is okay with them. This is what they want. I think physicians feel like, okay, you know, I, you, you understand the importance of breastfeeding. I think we make this assumption that families do understand the importance of breastfeeding. Probably don't, they probably don't understand the importance to their own health. Um, but then they're just trying to get by, right? Uh, and they're struggling, mental, you know, with mental health. And so oh, absolutely. How, do we, how do we balance that support for the mental health and support for our ideal infant feeding? For sure. I think that, you know, if, if I hear, oh, they can't get back to sleep, that's like, oh, they probably have postpartum anxiety. We need to address that. The other thing that I think really would fit nicely with the way that pediatricians work is I've been toying with this idea of creating like some sort of ages and stages of breastfeeding to highlight the problems that I see all the time. So like, for example, when I was in general peds, I used to always at the two week visit say, Hey, I know your baby is pooping eight times a day, but sometime around four weeks, they're going to change to pooping once a day or once a week. And that prevented me from getting the call at four weeks. My baby's constantly they haven't pooped in five days because that's just a normal thing that happens to breastfed babies. Right. Yes. Understanding all of those really basic normal things, you know, will actually, if it was written up for families, they wouldn't call as often. Yeah, right? for sure. It's like what the OBs do when it comes to like, you're pregnant, here's the book before you call me, look in here and read about heartburn, read about whatever it saves them a lot of calls. And so like, Three quick examples from breastfeeding world is one is around four to six weeks, babies stop going like sleep, 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 eat, sleep, 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 eat. And they start actually having this wakeful period after eating. And that's great. They're super cute. They're looking up at us. We love it. But after 20 minutes, when they get tired, they don't know what to do with themselves because in the past, they've always just nursed themselves to sleep. So they start to fuss and then people go, oh, you're still hungry. And I already fed you the breast, so you must need more. And they give formula. Whereas if you explain to them, like if you kick their little legs and play with them, they'll be happy for a little longer. And then you can put them back on your breast and they'll fall right to sleep. Or at, you know, four months. So, so common that babies start to have nursing strikes and it's really, people are still timing them. I hate that people time babies breastfeeding. And so this, you know, baby got super efficient. They used to need 30 minutes to feed. Now it only takes them six. The right. parents are putting them back on the breast, back on the breast, back on the breast. And they're being like, Hey, I'm full. And if you keep doing it, they start like, even if they're hungry, you put them near, they turn their head to the side because they're like, you are so pushy. And it's like, 
the first sign of the teenager to come. Yes, exactly. I was going to say that. They're, they have attitudes from the get-go. If they could roll their eyes, they would. At that point. <laughs> I mean, we all have that need for independence and autonomy. And I think then like the next one, and this is just because all of the people who trained us didn't manage breastfeeding, they all took care of formula feeding in the 80s, is when pediatricians say, oh, your baby's going to sleep, you know, through the night, 10 hours, 12 hours. And then parents don't breastfeed overnight and they get their period back and their milk supply crashes. And, you know, just the anticipatory guidance of like, yeah, babies may sleep a long time, but adults don't sleep 12 hours in a row. And so like, you're allowed to do a dream feed. It's okay to go in the morning and feed your baby and, you know, sideline nurse and then take a nap, like all sorts of different educational pieces that I think we need like a, a little recommendation 10, which is improve the education of pediatric providers and residents around the support of normal breastfeeding and routine problems. Yeah. Those are like the booby traps. Sounds like you already wrote your book. You just need to like type it up and put it in a binder and ship it. Oh out. yeah. In all yeah. my free time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this week in OB I know was like, Karen, you have got to start a website where you like sell your lectures to the patients. You're going to make, I was like, no, I didn't, that is not going to work in my life. And besides, I just want to teach the residents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. Very, very good. Okay, well, we'll call this uh, a day and a podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great one. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. Yeah, bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.